Father God, we come before you humbly submitting again to learn about your word from these last two chapters in your book. We ask that you open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is it. After tonight, we'll have turned the last page in the Bible and we'll be at the back cover of the God-inspired scriptures. The things that were forecast all through the Old Testament are being manifested finally in these chapters. All our earthly institutions, expectations, and problems are expanded, subverted, and overcome. And then we have the privilege of flipping back to the first page of Genesis, or wherever you happen to be in your own studies, and reading that portion in light of the last chapters of Revelation. In cinema, the mark of a great twist ending is that it subverts everything that came before it, flipping it over and giving it new meaning that you didn't have before. What appeared as straightforward is now revealed as complex. What appeared as irrelevant now shines with new importance. In the movie The Sixth Sense, which is a classic of our generation, but it's now 16 years old, so I don't feel bad spoiling it for anyone here, the main character, Dr. Malcolm Crowe, is a child psychologist struggling to help a troubled young boy named Cole. Cole claims to be able to see and interact with the spirits of dead people. Dr. Crowe goes through the whole movie, first skeptical of the boy's ability, and then believing, and finally, in the twist ending, he's revealed to be dead himself, a ghost as helpless and troubled as the other spirits, and not so much helping the young boy as being helped by him. But the movie's quality shines through when you watch it a second time now that you know the twist. You see that Dr. Crow enters Cole's house to speak about being hired by his mother, but never actually speaks to the mother. He never interacts with Cole's mother at all. You never see him take off his coat or eat or open a door. His total failure to communicate with his wife, once thought to be the result of a cracking marriage, is in fact the fact that he is dead and his wife is grieving. It's the revelation of that ending that gives the whole thing a new meaning. And in our case, it's the ending of Revelation that gives the whole thing a new meaning. Once we see how God's plan ends, we can appreciate better how God's plan proceeds now and how it began and moved through until now. We started this series talking about imagery and themes and promises and how much those things reveal threads which run through Scripture, some starting as early as Genesis and carry on the whole way through. We're going to look at how some of those threads terminate here in these last two chapters of the Bible. It's a lot of text, and we're going to jump around a fair bit. Uh, so let's take a moment first to appreciate the structure of these two chapters before we get moving. Both chapters 21 and 22 can be broadly divided into two parts. Chapter 21 begins where we have just read, showing the new heavens and the new earth, because the old ones have passed away. Christ declares from verses 6 to 8 that it is done. He is the Alpha and the Omega. To his people will come life and inheritance. To those who have rejected him, who have taken their own ways, their portion will be in the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast they elected to follow. The lens then tightens on verses 9 through 22, a narrower, closer view, a focus on this new Jerusalem, what it's like, what's new about it. We see a great majestic city of unprecedented size, 12,000 stadia long, high, and wide, in actually relevant measurements that comes out close to 2,200 kilometers or roughly the distance of flight between Melbourne and Cairns. It radiates wealth and glory. 
12 gates named for the 12 tribes, 12 foundation stones named for the 12 apostles. The gates are solid pearl. The streets are paved with gold. We have a vision of plenty and prosperity for a people historically hedged out to the fringe of society because of their pursuit of God's ways. God will provide for them this unparalleled wealth and majesty that puts all other cities in history to shame. Chapter 22 begins with a finer vision still in the most beautiful and promising part of this city. The river of the water of life flowing through the center of the city, through the middle of the street, and to either side of that river, the tree of life. Here is eternal life in God's city at the foot of God's throne with all the blessings offered in history offered again in this one location. And finally, in chapter 22 from verses 6 through to 22, we have the final words in Scripture, the words of Christ delivered by an angel to John, reminding him that this happens soon, that the guilty will be punished, that the righteous will be repaid, and that tampering with the text of God's word is forbidden and punishable. This is the scenario that Jesus was talking about when he said he was going to prepare a place for his disciples. This is the place. When he told folks not to fear the one who can kill the body, but instead the one who can destroy also the soul, this division between the river of life and the lake of fire is the division that was to be feared. And in light of these chapters, we can go back and look at some of the threads that emerge from Scripture that were always leading here. And when we encounter them again in our later Bible studies and our private reading, we're equipped to understand how they relate to the end of it all. And I've tried to compact as many of these threads down as I can, because there's a lot of them here. I came up with nine, I've crunched it down to six. I'm convinced you could get twice that many, um, even more than that with a little digging. But I'm going to go through the ones we have and try and do a little justice to each. And I'm sure when you read it yourself, you'll find your own. But the golden rule for these chapters is, whenever a new image or content is introduced, we have to ask, what is being completed here? What is being made perfect? What was promised that is arriving? Or what began by a curse that's now been uh, subverted or healed in some way? What's being perfected? So the six threads, here we go. Number one, the garden. From verses one and two of chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The mankind had anything like this sort of perfection was back in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, 9 and 10 shows a river that flows through Eden and waters it and also all kinds of trees, particularly the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In this restored world, in this new Jerusalem, we have many of these elements returning, and not only returning, but better than ever. For a start, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That part of history, the temptation to sin, and the effort to deny that sin is over and gone. But instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we have another tree of life. Maybe even more, depending on how you look at it. Maybe a whole row stretching down either side of the river, but at least two. Charles Spurgeon points out that since the old garden was divided by a river and there was only one tree of life, it may not have always been easy for Adam to reach half of the time. He must have been on the other side of the river and therefore had a difficult time getting to the tree of life. But here, even that obstacle is gone. 
The river not only does not cut off man from the tree of life, the river itself is the river of the water of life. It has some of this life-giving quality that the trees have. And these trees are so abundant with fruit that they turn out a crop every month. Twelve crops once every month as part of this God-ordered twelveness we see through this whole chapter. So we can see that the new Jerusalem is the garden 2.0, new and improved with new features and new wonders. Likewise, we remember that when Adam and Eve were evicted from the garden, God placed angels and a flaming sword to guard the way back to the tree of life so they couldn't get there. But in chapter 21, verse 12, we have this. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, more angelic guardians, except these angels have nothing to guard against. All the threats that are there are in the lake of fire and sulfur, well secured. The only purpose of these guardian angels is to remind us that this is God's chosen domain and to show us how prized and precious it is by how God arrays protections around it. It is better than the garden was. And this tells us something. This tells us that when God made the garden, he already had in mind to make something better. The sinful actions, the defiance of men and angels for all their rage are just tools in the hands of our God to make a better world. Sometimes we joke about the garden and say something like, if only Adam had uh, kept Eve from uh, talking to the serpent or if she just kicked the serpent out of the garden rather than listening to it, we'd still be in the garden and everything would be great. No. Praise God that he chooses to unfold history in this way and not in any other way. We were never meant to stay in that garden. There is a greater plan happening, and we're part of it. This new Jerusalem is the apotheosis, the perfection of that garden from Genesis. Second thread, creation. Not just the garden from Genesis 2, but even all of creation, as shown in Genesis 1, finds its completion here and its perfection and fulfillment in the end of Revelation. Who doesn't know Genesis 1-1 by heart? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Exactly. Verse 2 I'll give you for free. And the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovers over the waters. Revelation 21 starts, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. This is not just a facelift of the old earth. This is a new heaven and a new earth. The sea is utterly gone. The first day of creation features God saying, let there be light. And there was light. God called the light day and the darkness night. But Revelation 22.5 says, there will be no more night. There will not be need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. These chapters show us what creation was aimed towards. God built into the fabric of the universe this imagery that would be important to his gospel. On the first day, he divided day from night. On the third day, he divides land from sea. The darkness of night and the depth of the sea are mysterious, impenetrable, and dangerous to people. If you are lost in the dark, you need light. Well, you're doomed. If you are sinking in waters far from land, your only chance for survival is a miracle from the one who can walk on the waters. 
And now in this new creation, these things are gone. There is no sea. There is no darkness. There is no longer any need for creation to mimic the old age when men and women stumbled and crawled through an uncertain and dangerous world. Likewise, on the fourth day of creation, God populates the heavens with the sun and the moon. But in, chapters, in chapter 21, verse 23 of Revelation, we hear, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. For most of us, if you look back far enough, you will find that in your ancestry, there's a point where you had pagan ancestors and a pretty decent chance that they worshipped the sun and the moon. Our ancestors were not stupid. They just weren't as clever as they thought they were. There is something undeniably divine-seeming about the sun and the moon. They give us light. And they seem divine to us because they were made by God to reflect his glory in creation. And our instinct is to worship the divine. And when we see the divine reflected, we worship what's reflecting it. Ancient man did it with nature. Modern man tends to do it with the human body, though nature is rapidly coming back into vogue. Even John, while he is receiving this message, falls down and tries to worship the angel giving him the message. Twice, in fact, in chapter 19 and also here in 22, 8 to 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll. Worship God. We have an instinct to worship what reflects God's glory. And as sinners, we can only see God's glory in reflection. Because the Bible tells us to see God's glory directly would be fatal. It's the difference between going blind from staring at the sun or seeing sunlight reflected off the moon. But of course, then we call it moonlight and we forget the sun had any part in it. So we need a reflector that is in creation to see God's glory without being destroyed. But we will, by impulse, worship that reflector. So creation shows us what we need, both at its inception and throughout this history racked by sin, is a reflector of God's glory that manifests in creation and is also fully God and therefore worthy of the praise it's going to receive. It makes sense that it should be human since humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. And it would need to be a human who was also fully divine so that he would be worthy of that praise. And that's exactly what we are given in the Son of God, a reflector of God's glory who is worthy of God's praise. And here in the last chapters of Revelation, there is no dark sea, there is no deep night, there is no threatening man or demon fencing him off from the presence of God. Chapter 21, verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne, remember who is on this throne, the risen lamb, saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Creation's purpose is revealed and perfected in these chapters. That's thread number two. Thread number three, marriage. 
Marriage is given its perfection, its apotheosis in these chapters. There is no shortage of occasions in the Old Testament or the New where the people of God are symbolically seen as a woman, as the bride for God. But the interesting thing about symbols is they tend to really only work one way. If you're driving through the country and you see a sign that shows a silhouette of a kangaroo and then some hundred meters later you see an actual mob of kangaroos, you don't say, well, obviously these kangaroos are here to remind me that there was a sign a hundred meters behind me. It's a good thing they put these ruse here. I would have forgotten about that sign. Marriage is a symbol for our relationship with God. And for that matter, our corporate relationship with God. We are not a billion brides, we are the bride. Chapter 21, verse 9 says, Come, I will show you the bride of the Lamb, before showing John the glorious city in which all the saints are destined to live in eternity. Jesus tells us that in heaven there will be no marriage, that there is a destiny for the saints to become like the angels, not taking or giving in marriage. And on first blush, this is a discouraging line. I'm not married myself, obviously, and the reports that bubbled up last year that I would be eloping to Texas turned out to be greatly exaggerated, but you don't need to be married to understand that, generally speaking, people like their spouse. The idea of being without them as a husband or wife is somewhat intimidating. Breaking up or losing a loved one is just about the most painful thing someone can do. For most people, their first breakup does feel like the end of the world. Some folks cope by eating ice cream and watching old movies or distracting themselves with a hobby. I tend to find a song that I can project all my feelings on and then listen to it over and over like a crazy person. But the reason that hurts so much is because that relationship provides something critically desired in the human soul. And in God's new creation, in verse 4, we hear, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That yawning need, that chasm in the soul of men and women to be fulfilled, will be fulfilled by God's own kindness in the new world. What does it look like in practice? Do husbands and wives still get to live together as eternal best friends? I don't know. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing and wait to see for ourselves. But is it any wonder that for the world that does not know God, finding their partner becomes just about the most important thing in their life? This is why every movie needs to have at least a B story about two lonely people who fall in love and solve all their problems off screen. We can say all we want about how prominent sex is in our culture, but a 60-year-old man who has never married is thought of by our godless culture as a failure, regardless of how much sex he may have had on the way. It's even worse for women. By the time they hit 29, if they are unmarried, every married aunt, grandma, and female friend is insatiably driven to try and shuffle the process along somehow. But if life is just about the here and now, and you fail to get married, and thus fail to fulfill that benchmark need for life, for a life partner that most people feel, then you have failed at life. But our God shows us what life is really about. He shows us that marriage is a symbol, a sacred symbol, that points back to him. And that one day, even that institution will pass away. 
But all those who have been made clean, male and female, single, married and divorced, childless or prodigiously childed, will be uplifted into that corporate bridehood, into the final perfection of the concept of marriage. Fourth thread, and I'll try and be a little quicker or else Jesus will come before I finish. Uh, Fourth thread, these chapters, they show us the ultimate truth of prophecy and prophets and scripture. I say prophecy and scripture. I put these two together because they are both the inspired words of God as given to man. God has been communicating with man like this for thousands of years. Those words he inspired to become scripture have become scripture. Verse, or chapter 22, verse 6 says, The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. Oh, pardon me. Our God is the God who inspires the prophets. And since Moses, they have been progressively revealing more and more about God and his plan for creation. The picture was not so clear as it is for us, for the early Israelites who understood that they were to be a, a light to the Gentiles and a chosen people of God. But the picture became progressively clearer with more prophets as time moved on. In Isaiah 65:17, we read, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth in prophecy of this coming time. In Ezekiel, in the last chapters of his scroll, he describes a vision of a great rebuilt city in which the Jews and any who come to settle with them will one day come. And it's enormous and it has 12 gates with 12 names and the city is called The Lord is There. Daniel sees a vision of the end times and asks what it means, but he is told, go your way, Daniel, because these words are closed up and sealed to the end of time. But here in Revelation 22:12, we are told, then he told me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this scroll, because the time is near. All prophecy, all scripture was established to lead men and women to God, and these chapters are the final step. After they are given, there comes a final warning, final warning, final warning in verses 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from the prophecy in this scroll, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Now John undoubtedly understood those words to mean the scroll he was writing, the book of Revelation, but we know this can apply to all of Scripture. Moses writes in Deuteronomy, do not add to what I command you, or do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord God that I give to you. The reason we do not get to pick and choose the scriptures we like, or add in things that aren't there, is because they are God-inspired. And all of our scriptures are God-inspired. And with this last book comes the final clarity we need in the revelation of God. This sometimes is still confusing to us as we've seen going through Revelation, but we have enough for that light at our feet, for that critical information to follow God in a glorifying and honoring way. That is why there are no more prophets like Moses or Isaiah or John. There is no more of this nature to reveal. The deed is done, Christ is risen. Our path 
is made clear by the scriptures. Have faith, endure, and look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Thread five. These chapters show us the ultimate fulfillment of the priesthood and the temple. Priesthood and the temple. The temple itself was a gigantic symbol, the place man goes to meet with God. The temple is therefore linked very much to the garden. But here we see the ultimate fate of the temple. See, in Ezekiel's vision of the city of God, he saw a temple with a river flowing out of it. But here in John's vision, we have a refined version of this city, one that complements what the Jewish readers would recall from Ezekiel. And we are told in verse 22 of chapter 21, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. You see, the temple is the place where the priests meticulously strove to make things ritually clean so they could come before God. But God is not just some kind of cosmic germaphobe. Uncleanliness, uncleanliness does not hurt him. The temple culture was established by God like the sun and the moon, like the institution of marriage, to point to a truth about him. That there was something terrible and deficient in man, that sin that isolates him from God by God's own just decree, and that a blood sacrifice is required to cleanse that sin, the sacrifice that Jesus provided for us. Do you see how all these threads begin to come together and meet at this one place at the end of the Bible? Christ is our great high priest who made us a nation of priests. He is also referred to himself as a temple. He said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And that any who thirst should come to him and he would give them water that would never leave them thirsty again. And Ezekiel sees a vision of a temple with a river running through it. And the priests spend generations performing what amount to symbolic rites trying to keep the unclean things out of the temple. And then finally, finally comes John. John with his vision of a city that is the same cubic shape as the Holy of Holies in the temple. John with his vision of a city in which there is no temple, but there is a river of life-giving water flowing from the throne of the Lamb slain for our sins. John, who's writing, tells us three times in these two chapters that nothing unclean will enter this city, that the wicked are locked out and tossed into the, gate of fire, into the lake of fire. John, who has seen the garden remade and improved, and so the temple made obsolete. All these threads terminate here in these last two chapters. Sixth thread, last one, the thread of the king and the kingdom. It's no big politically charged statement to say that our efforts in this world as humans to govern ourselves with kings and rulers have largely been failures. History is rich with murderous tyrants and dynastic monsters and more sharply in the last hundred years than any other time in history. The problem is that people are sinful and short-lived and our rulers, unfortunately, have to be people. Sometimes you get a good one, and for their life, they generally improve the lives of people beneath them, but you can't keep them for long. Soon enough, they'll go away or they'll die, and some bright spark will either serve themselves following that at the expense of everyone else, 
or they will presume they know how society really works, and then they'll try to steer it and crash it into a telephone pole. We're terrible at governing ourselves. And even the kings that God appointed were terrible at it. Saul, the first king, was a write-off after the first couple of chapters we saw him. David starts off young and valorous and then takes a detour through adultery and murder and ends up as a weird old man who sleeps cuddling a pretty young woman to keep warm. Solomon is divinely gifted with wisdom and wealth like the world has never seen and is given the honor of building the first temple of God and then in a display that shows how shockingly stupid even wise people can be. He builds his own house next to the temple, bigger than the temple, and then other temples to other gods. It's pretty much downhill from there. Humans are incapable of self-governance over a long period of time, even if they manage it for a short one. And the world is forced to flounder around and try and invent new political ideologies and new ways of doing things and then to kill as many people as they need to to get these things implemented. But we know that man was never capable of ruling himself. It was never in his design. But what God does promise is a king who will live forever, who will come from the line of David. Revelation 22.16 says... I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, of David, the bright and morning star. He's the promised king of mankind with a heavenly nature. Under his authority, mankind can finally live in harmony with each other. Even if man was sinless against God and perfect in action and outlook, the very fact that humans have this limited perception, limited reason, and limited empathy means that they would fall to strife and conflict with one another eventually. Most fights and disagreements, I'm sure you know, happen from a misunderstanding. And we are prone to those misunderstandings. And if there's no one with a greater perspective to adjudicate and stand over those misunderstandings, there can only be limited peace. But we have a perfect divine king and a promise that we can dwell with him in the heavenly city forever. The kingship thread is finally fulfilled here after all of human history in Revelation. Now there is no new application for our behavior from these chapters. These are not moralistic chapters. They tell us what will be, how God's plan comes together, how all the works of God in the ancient tales of the Old Testament are seen to be completed in the future. But this does have implications for how we worship and how we read Scripture. The threads bind it all together. Our theology of God is not merely a list of rules, not merely a puffy, non-specific relationship with God, and it's not purely a simple message that can be contained entirely in a palm-sized tract. The gospel message that we are enjoined to bring to the world can fit in a palm-sized tract, but that is a doorway into Scripture and into relationship with God. And we're to bring people in and marvel as we wander through it, through these great and majestic hallways of what God has done, this miraculous and powerful account of God acting in history and in times yet to come. 
Let's thank God that he sent his son to save us from the lake of fire and sulfur and that he's given us scriptures by which we can know more of his incredible plan and a shadow of his incredible mind and that we have an inherited destiny that one day Christ will come and all pain and sin will pass away and those whom he has saved will live forever in the new creation. John's revelation finishes with these words in verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we've explored the revelation of your servant, John, and we thank you for what you've revealed. That there is a place for us in the new creation as the bride of the Lamb. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son that made us clean to come to you and to escape the lake of fire. Thank you for your scriptures that reveal to us more of your plan and your action in history and in the days yet to come. And thank you for this marvelous destiny. We ask your blessing that your spirit will make us live lives more worthy of your freely given favor. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.